Disrupt Radio, the sound of Australian entrepreneurial spirit. Self-improvement comes at a cost, physically, financially, but crucially mentally. How do you stay sane? Maybe you own a business, are an entrepreneur, or simply want to improve yourself. Are you overloaded, overwhelmed, and just over it? On Soul Trader, you'll hear from individuals who have achieved huge things in life, how they keep it together, and how they survive the struggle to success. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, and this is Soul Trader. Disrupt Radio. In the era of capitalistic maximization, artificial intelligence, and social media, grind culture is more prevalent than ever. We now live in a society that romanticizes sacrifice, overworking, and glorifies pushing your mind and body to a breaking point. But at what cost? The relentless pursuit of success becomes a race without a finish line, a never-ending marathon where you're always looking over your shoulders, comparing yourself to others, and trying to outdo one another. This culture of constant comparison leaves you feeling inadequate, anxious, and perpetually unsatisfied. Pushing yourself to the brink might bring short-term gains, but it often leads to long-term consequences. Burnout, anxiety, depression, and even physical health issues. We're sacrificing our well-being on the altar of ambition, and it's time to question whether it's worth it. What if I told you there's a better way? A path that values self-compassion, accepting vulnerability, and embracing your unique journey as entrepreneurs. Self-compassion is not a weakness, it's a superpower. When you treat yourself with kindness and understanding, you build resilience and a strong foundation to tackle life's challenges. Embracing your vulnerability doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're brave enough to acknowledge your struggles and limitations. And it's this courage that connects you to others on a deeper level. Let's imagine a world where we support each other's growth, rather than measuring success by how far you've outrun your peers. Imagine a community where vulnerability is seen as a strength, where we inspire each other, not through comparisons, but by celebrating each other's unique achievements and diverse paths. By practicing self-compassion and accepting vulnerability, you create a sustainable approach to entrepreneurship. You may still face setbacks, but they become stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. You'll develop mental clarity and creativity, essential for making sound decisions and fostering innovation. Your journey as entrepreneurs is not just about achieving success, but also about experiencing personal growth along the way. You'll cultivate a positive work culture, encouraging your teams to thrive rather than merely survive. By doing so, you'll discover the true essence of success and live a life that's fulfilling both personally and professionally. Soul Trader. Our next guest shares how learning to embrace self-compassion and vulnerability can actually empower us to reach our goals and safeguard our mental health. He overcame a years-long struggle with anxiety and chronic pain and the winding path to find the right diagnosis and treatment. Congressman Adam Smith was successful by every measure. He had a long, distinguished career in Congress, 
serving as a US representative for Washington's 9th Congressional District and previously serving in the Washington State Senate. He and his wife of 20 years were both happy together in raising two great kids. Yet seemingly out of nowhere, his body and mind broke down to the point where every day was a relentless struggle just to keep moving. It's a struggle hundreds of millions know all too well. Adam, thank you so much for making the time to come on Soul Trader. I really appreciate you setting aside the time and, yeah, super excited to, to dive into this conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to, to be on and talk with you. I guess the connection we have is, you know, my dad was a politician in, in Australia, Premier of Victoria, and so, you know, always interested in in this world, you know, it's something I've been exposed to. And it's interesting when you, you mentioned your, your father being involved in politics. My, I did, I been in Congress for 27 years. My children were born when I was in Congress. And now one of them's working back in Washington, DC and the other one's still in college, but he's interning back here. So I, I kind of you know, relate through them what it must've been like grow, grow, growing up in that, in that world. You know, very unique way to grow up, and it was hard to relate to other kids. And you know, you're growing up with having security, sometimes you know, taking you to school and uh, just exposed, you know, to media and different things. That uh, it's an unusual existence, and came with you know positives and negatives. But yeah, it's a it's a different world, very different way to grow up. So I guess before we get into it, would you be able to just give uh, our listeners a bit of a background on yourself and the work you're doing and how you came to where you are today and, you know, with writing the book and everything else. Yeah, sure. So I am now a member of Congress who represents the ninth district of the state of Washington. And I've had that position for 27 years. So I've been elected to 14 terms. Uh, my specialty back in Congress has been in uh, the Department of Defense, national security issues, because I serve on the Armed Services Committee. I've been the top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee since 2011. So when the Democrats are in the majority, I've been the chair. When we're in the minority, I've been the ranking member. So I was chair for four years. But I really got started in um, SeaTac, Washington. Uh, it's a town I grew up in. My father was a ramp serviceman uh, for United Airlines, uh, baggage handler. Um, I mean, just, I used to joke that yeah, I felt like there was good karma out there because I never lost a bag. But actually, not not to dime out Australia here, but Qantas lost my bag. <laughs> Eventually, they found it. But anyway, it, it worked out. Um, so, and I, you know, as a young person, was interested in politics because of my father. He was a union rep and he was really interested in these things. He wasn't himself involved, but he wanted me to be. So I grew up in that community and then I, you know, went to college, got a political science degree and I was in law school when I decided to run for local office for the state Senate. So I wound up getting elected to the state Senate when I was 25, um, which is a very long story in and of itself. Um, It was a race that nobody thought I would win. Uh, But because I had my connection to the community, that was really the thing that got me there. And also I worked really hard at it, you know, but I'd grown up with the people there and I knocked on a lot of doors and got elected. And that's how I got into politics. And I discovered that, A, I really like it. Basically, I like bringing people together to solve problems. I know that's Mm. not what most people think of politics as being, but that's what it's supposed to be. And so I can work with my community. If someone has a concern, I can help them. I can figure out what's a better way to help deal with the problems and challenges that people have. And then my career really worked out quite well from there. I spent six years in the state Senate, four years as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, so I got to work on a lot of issues, and then got elected to Congress in 1996 and, you know, 
been here ever since. Along the way, I, I met my wife when I was in the state Senate. Um, we've been married for almost exactly 30 years now, coming up in uh, two weeks and have two children, a daughter who's going to turn 23 in a week. Um, and my son is 20 and a, a junior in college. And I've lived all over the sort of South King County area, SeaTac, Tacoma, Kent, Bellevue. Um, and so that's that's basically my career in a nutshell, with the one big exception of throughout that period of time. I had on and off battles with chronic pain and anxiety um, that really got to the point where they were no longer controllable in 2013. I was overcome by anxiety that just wouldn't go away. Um, and then chronic pain set in in 2014. I had three hip surgeries. I have two artificial hips now. None of those surgeries went particularly well, mainly because I was missing what the real problem was. And basically, my book is about that six-year struggle from 2013 to 2019 when I got into the mess and then I tried to figure out how to get out of it by working through our healthcare system. So I start the book in the middle of that and then explain how I got there and then crucially how I found treatment. And really, that's the biggest message I want to deliver. If you have chronic pain, if you have mental health issues, help exists. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's almost never going to be the same uh, for, for any two people, but it's there. And so I urge people to pursue that help and be open and honest about it. And that's the other big reason why I wanted to write the book. I think a lot of people are get these feelings. They're like, I'm some kind of weirdo because nobody else is feeling this. Um, I think if we're honest about what's out there, it can help people understand that they are one of many. Um, it's not anything that they should be ashamed of or certainly not anything they should hide. Uh, they should open and honestly address it and, and get help. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful message. And that's the thing that I've learned the most over you know, the last 15 years being in as a mental health advocate, just sharing those stories. And, you know, even for me, hearing your story and hearing you talk openly about that journey, it really does help because that, that is the key thing. Everyone goes through a different version, their own unique version of, you know, these of, of mental health related issues, some severe, some less severe, but it's all, it's part of the human experience. And it's crazy that we've been made to feel, I mean, less so now, but still there is a lot of that stigma that uh, yeah. we're alone in that suffering. And, and I love the way that you're, you're conveying this message that about the practicality of how do we actually find help? How do we get the help we need? What process? Because it's a minefield, you know, it's such a, there's no one size fits all and there's a million different ways we can go about it. So it's sort of about finding, you know, your own, your own way forward, which you know, I want to jump into with you in a second. But I think firstly, just with your career and the longevity you've had, I mean, it's insane that at 25 getting to that position, I mean, that's so incredibly young and that you're still, you've had so much longevity. Would you say a big part of that has been because you, you know, you had that passion and purpose uh, that was so aligned with, I guess, you know, the career you've gone into, it was so aligned with your passion and purpose and you were doing it for those right reasons, which I think, again, is refreshing to hear in this day and age. But would you say that's part of where that longevity has come from? 
Yeah, absolutely. Part of it. And also part of the irony of this is, you know, my anxiety stems from severe insecurity um, as, mm-hmm. as a child. Um, I was adopted. There's a whole bunch of different issues that, that went into that, but I'm very, very insecure. I was really worried about what other people thought of me. Um, I didn't understand my place in the world and I felt like I had to work extra hard in order to achieve it. Um, and, and the good news about that is two things. One, you know, failure was not an option in my mind. Um, I had to prove myself on a day in and day out basis. So even in that first state Senate campaign, after my can, and I document this in the book, after my campaign plan had fallen completely apart, I didn't give up. Um, and that relentlessness to just keep working and never accept the fact um, that it was over, you know, really helped me. And that was driven by my insecurity. And then the second part of it that I think is really helpful to me as a public official is what I said earlier. I really care about what other people think. Um, you know, I, I, I want to know if someone, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, doing a town hall meeting and I've got a hundred people there and maybe 99 of them are all going, yeah. And I look over and there's one person looking at me like I'm an idiot. I got to address that. <laughs> okay. I've got to figure out, okay, what am I doing wrong? What I'm saying, what's good. You know, and the thing is, that's, those are really positive traits, I think, in life in general. But the problem is you also have to have those within a healthy mental state because those positive traits can cross over the line to creating massive anxiety. If you have that level of insecurity, you know, it's just going to be really difficult um, you know, if you push yourself constantly to be in the right mental space. So I'm, I'm super interested in what you were talking about there with insecurity and totally relate. It's been the biggest driving force for me uh, in my career and everything's been sort of approached with that mindset of failure is not an option. I've had to succeed. And I think also having a successful father drove that uh, even more so. Um, so I find it interesting. I, I mean, do you see that as a positive or negative? Because I think a lot of us are driven to succeed through you know, potentially, I don't know for the words negative, but through trying to, you know, overcompensate, but then it actually leads, you know, often to the path that we want to go on. So I I just find that fascinating. I'm interested in your view on that. Well, it's funny you should say that because I I used to joke before I had all these mental health problems that I believe in the power of negative thinking. And what I meant by that was if you anticipate what might get in the way of your goals, then you're going to overcome them. You're going to focus on it. You have to be clear-eyed about what's in front of you. And really the conclusion that I reached after three and a half years of psychotherapy and talking through this was it is a complete positive, but you have to look at it the right way and you have to understand what that drive means. And what I was missing, I, I was driven to do this because I, you know, I felt like I had to prove myself. All right. And there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and driven. But when you get to that point where you think it's your meaning in life, you're really just, you're setting yourself up for failure. And this was the big concept that I did not understand and no one ever explained to me until until about the 10th psychiatrist that I found. He was a psychologist, but therapist, if you will, who actually helped me. And that was the concept of a healthy narcissism and the notion of your own self-worth. The the first thing the psychologist said to me when I met with him the first time in the office after having read through my questionnaire was he said, you don't think you have the right to exist. And when he said that to me, I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I don't know what that means. And I have no idea how it's going to help me. But it was actually the key. 
Because if you don't, as a child, you're supposed to develop this baseline sense of your own self-worth. And that self-worth is not connected to how good you are at anything or what you've achieved or haven't achieved. You have it because you're human. All right. And if you don't believe that, then you think if you fail, if you screw something up, it really is kind of an existential threat. Because if you're not proving yourself to people every second of every day, it's not just that you had a bad day. Or you get, no, you think you have no worth as a human being. And that stability has to come from your upbringing. And the other big point that I make, there's a lot of focus in mental health on what I would call extreme trauma. So, you know, children who have been abused, they grew up with an alcoholic father, you know, or abandoned or any number of different really traumatic things. And those are huge problems that need to be dealt with. And, I, and there, there are mental health ways to deal with that. But trauma can be a lot simpler than that. In my case, I was adopted. You know, my mother had a bit of a depression problem. My father had a bit of an anxiety problem. I had a problematic old, I had an older brother. I, I had a somewhat unstable childhood. And I never got that sort of sense of inherent self-worth. And you have to work back to get that. Now, if you get that, and this was what the other thing that held me up in treatment is I sort of got that after about, I don't know, two years, whatever it was. But I was thinking, wait a second, this is who I am. I'm driven. I'm ambitious. And aside from, I don't know, all the drugs I'm taking and the fact that I'm freaked out all the time, it's kind of worked out pretty well for me. You know, I'm successful. <laughs> I've got a good marriage. I've got a good family and everything. So if you take this away from me, you know, who am I? But the answer to that question is you're a better person. I haven't lost that drive. Okay. You can yes. talk to anyone I work with back here. Um, you know, as the chairman of the armed services committee, we got a hell of a lot done and I had to work my way through around over and with a whole lot of people to get it done. I never lost that drive and that ambition, but the sentence that I really liked that occurred to me is I do it all the same, but without the anger and self-flagellation. And that can be done. Okay. You don't have to beat yourself up constantly to motivate yourself. But that's what, you know, the therapy and the discussion taught me. So I think it's a huge positive if you understand how to manage it within a healthy mental, mental space. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And, and that, I think that is what a lot of people think when we, if you're going to, you know, take medication, work on these problems, try and resolve these traumas or whatever it is, there can be a, a fear that that might take away that drive, that might take away whatever this, you know, magic ingredient is, this, this thing inside me that makes me me and makes me want to, you know, do these different things. But as you're saying there, if anything, it's actually going to make you more you. So you're, you're just going to have more, more, more stability to do all of the things you want to do and most likely get better results. I mean, have you felt that it's, if anything, improved your ability to perform in, in, in what you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's, it's made it so much better. It's, it's improved my relationships to begin with. Um, yeah. you know, I was always kind of an introverted person and I'm, I'm in an odd profession to be introverted. Now, o over the years, it's like, you know, I, okay, if this, you know, to me, if, if this is what I have to do, I will be extroverted. Okay. I, I will figure out how to make it work. But once I developed a better understanding of how my mind worked, it also gave me a greater appreciation for the people around me. And that's the other big key message that I have here. And you, you alluded to earlier, the fact that we're, the stigma around mental health is lessening. 
And you said, but not entirely. And you're absolutely right. It is lessening. It's still there. It's still a problem. But the other piece that I see as we've, we've become more open in talking about mental health, um, there's also such a thing as an unhealthy narcissism, okay? Mental health to truly work can't just be about you. It also helps to understand that the people you're dealing with in life, they've got stuff going on too. And what it really opened my eyes to, I mean, you encounter people you get into a conflict with, and they seem just sort of irrationally angry. I deal with people sometimes who are irrationally angry. They're upset about what happened and all that. But when it goes to like an irrational level, your, your initial instinct is, well, that guy's just a, just a jerk, okay? Now I stop and go, hey, what's going on with that person? I mean, what, what, what unresolved issues, what challenges are they facing? And it really develops that empathy so you can better understand people. And if you're trying to get something done, whether you're trying to get a business deal done, I know you've, you've started up some businesses, you're trying to get customers, you're working with other people, you're going to need other people to be successful in just about anything that you're going, going to do. And if you have that better understanding of where those other people are coming from, you can work better with them and you can accomplish more by figuring out how to, I don't want to say how to get them to do what you want, but basically how to persuade them of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So yes, I think it clearly, it can, can, can make you much more successful in whatever you're doing in life. On every level. Exactly. And I mean, that's the thing because we, it can make our experience better. It can make us connect more. Like you're saying there, we often might feel threatened or frustrated or anger towards someone who is not, is having an opposing view or acting in a way that we might not agree with. But if you can step out and remove your emotion, exactly like you're saying there, you can almost have empathy for them and think, hang on, you know, everyone, we all generally want the same thing. What's happened here? Why are they feeling this way? What have they gone through? And, and, and as you're saying as well, I think that's such an important message for anyone listening. I mean, a, a lot of our listeners are wanting to venture into doing their own business, getting into taking the plunge on whatever career endeavor and, and realizing that no one does it alone. And I love hearing from, you know, people like yourself, these messages that it, it's, it, it always comes down to the people that we have around us and we all need support in different ways at work outside of work it, it all comes down to having having the right people around us so yeah i think it's a really really important message for anyone listening soul trainer for the work-life balance sheet one of my great fears when the anxiety hit and everything is like okay i'm not going to be able to get done what i need to get done and mm. the idea was always in my head and if i can't all the people around me are going to abandon me Basically, I was just sort of more wired to think that, you know, if I'm not delivering, then why is this person, you know, why are they even around? And, and what I learned is people don't really think like that. People are a lot kinder and more helpful than, than you might initially think. And throughout my whole process, I mean, certainly my family, my friends, my staff, I mean, the support that I received when I was, you know, not even close to 100%. You know, it was, well, frankly, it's overwhelming. I mean, even as I think about it now, I get, get emotional just thinking about all the people who were there for me when, when I really needed them. Uh, that type of, you know, connection, it's right there if you accept the reality that, that, that people are willing to offer it. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask you. How was that received uh, through the through the work that you're doing, through the people around you, how was the support? Was, were they surprised that you were going through this when you 
when you first spoke about it and and how difficult was that for you to first uh i guess reach out and you know be open and ask for that help yeah it was really hard because and i know it's ironic again in the profession that i'm in i hate asking other people for things um i just (laughs) yeah you know of course i got to raise money ultimately got to ask people to vote for me but by and large there's a way i can do something myself that's the way i prefer to do it and i had to I mean, literally, you know, I'd be in my office and I, I didn't have the physical strength to walk down to the cafeteria and get a sandwich. Okay. So somebody was going to have to do that for me. Um, you know, and, and they did, but, and also in my office, and it's also a balance, you know, at different times I I've helped other people. I mean, that's the way the world works. And I think we need to better understand that. Um, that, you know, everyone is going to struggle from time to time. The way we get through it is we have a support system. Um, and yeah, so that it was, it was difficult, but it also opened my eyes again to, to better understanding, you know, humanity from a more positive light, um, and to not be in that constant state of fear that, you know, well, everyone's going to leave me unless I'm doing something incredible for them. Um, which again, was a childhood thing, but, uh, but yeah, it really just it has improved and strengthened my relationships on a whole series of levels yeah and and it really is it's all the stories in our head and you know on both levels how we perceive people how we uh perceive ourselves i mean i always find it refreshing and you know i love that you're saying you know you're an introvert and you know hearing you talk now looking at what you do it's hard to believe that but it, I think that is a another important message for people because, you know, I'm incredibly shy, introverted, and it, when I first got into public speaking, I was terrified, but you build that <laughs> skill and, you you know, you and a lot, of, a lot of actors are really shy. So people, again, it's that thing in our mind of we look outside, and I think more so than ever now in this, you know, social media-driven world where it's all yeah. about comparison, looking at highlight reels, and we can very easily just sit there and think, oh, you know, if only I had what that person had and, you know, I, I could never do that. And, you know, they've, they, it's almost like looking at them like they're not human where we're not seeing what this person's actually right. had to go through behind the scenes to get to where yeah. they are. If I, just two quick stories of that. Now, as, as, as a parent of two children, I would walk around the house. You see all the pictures of the kids and everything. As I say, nobody ever takes a picture when your kid is up for the third straight night throwing up, you haven't slept in three days, you know, your wife and you are screaming at each other about who's helping out more or less. No one ever takes that picture or posts that Instagram. Okay. So, you know, the, the saying that pictures don't lie, pictures lie all the time. Okay. Because they are, they are a snapshot of a moment in time. All right. Yeah. So you have to expand that. And then, you know, you're talking about the public speaking thing really resonates because so I'm like shy, paranoid, you know, but I'm, you know, running for the state Senate, going knocking on doors and all that. But when I first started speaking, I was on the debate team at Fordham University um, where I went to undergrad and that was helpful to me. But debate for the most part at Fordham, we did, we debated with the Ivy League and all the other folks up there. But this first six rounds of debate were just four people and a judge me, my partner, and the other two teams. And I could get comfortable in that environment, all right? Mm. So I work in my fears, but I got good enough that my senior year actually made the final round at New York University. And in the final round, it's the two of you, the other team, and 250 people from all of these elite universities. Bottom line, I completely choked. I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I, I was just, sta- it was 
embarrassing. Um, as a really good friend of mine said to me afterwards, he says, yeah, Adam, but the only thing you didn't do was drool on yourself, uh, which I think was a pretty good <laughs> summary. All right. Because I was terrified. And I say all of this because not breaking, but objectively, I'm a very good public speaker now. I just spent last week debating all manner of different things on the defense bill on the floor of the house, and I'm really good at it. But if you'd gone back and played that video from when I was 21 years old, standing up on the stage in New York University, you would have gone, well, no one's ever going to hear from that guy again. All right. So understand that when you're dealing with your own struggles in life. We are a continuum. All right. It's not like, all right, you're always great. You're always awful. No, it's it's a process that, that we all go through. And I And you're right. Social media is just brutal on that front. You look at everybody else and you assume that what's wrong with me? I mean, their lives are perfect and do not believe that. Understand the limitations of that information. Uh, yeah, it is just because it's just too easy to pick it all apart and find those negatives when, yeah, it's just not it's not real. But I, I love that story. Thank you for, for sharing yeah. those. And, 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 and I think it's just, again, it's such an important message because – people need you know we want a quick fix a lot of the time now and as you're saying there for, uh, similar to me to get past that fear of public speaking I, I remember being at in university the first talks I did I would blank out I was mumbling vomiting before I'd do it in front of five people right. and three years later I was on a stage in front of a thousand people comfortably doing it but it was all you know it's immersion therapy it, I think I think it's one of the you know most impactful ways to improve and get over any of these fears by just throwing yourself in there and doing it. You know, it, there's, there's not many more powerful ways to, you know, to get over something. Yeah. And that's the other big thing in mental health is I, I think the way children are raised, certainly in the U S now, I think Australia is pro probably similar. It's by and large, a lot more comfortable environment than people grew up in a long time, a long time ago. And, and people are not comfortable with being uncomfortable. I struggle with this with, with, with my own children, you know, I mean, they're good, smart, capable and everything, but they're not, they're not used to being uncomfortable. So they think if they're feeling uncomfortable, that's something that they have to, they have to get rid of that. <laughs> they have to not experience that. Uh, when, when in fact, the exact opposite is true. If you're really going to, you know, fulfill yourself as a human, and I'm not even talking about professional accomplishment. I'm just talking about the emotions and the way you're supposed to feel as a human being. Huge chunk of that is figuring out how to deal with feeling uncomfortable. Um, you know, it, it makes you more alive and also makes you better prepared to deal with whatever life is going to throw at you down the road. It's okay. And believe me, I'm an insecure person. I remember what that felt like. I'm not dismissing it. It's terrible. Okay. In the moment, it's just like, um, but you learn from it and, and, and you become a better person um, for both yourself and, and for the people around you. And it's just practice. I mean, and it doesn't, yeah. you know, it, it's, it doesn't feel amazing in the moment, but I, I look at it like, you know, going to the gym. I, it's one of my favorite things to do. And, you know, you have to drag yourself out of bed. It doesn't feel great, you know, when you're getting started, but then you're on a high afterwards. You feel amazing for the rest of the day. And it's the same thing. You know, you do something uncomfortable. It, doesn't feel great at the time but then you you know you get this the longevity that comes from that is is huge and it's just it gets you out of your head and you know it takes practice to do it but yeah it does bring so many positives so it's just getting used to and i think yeah. re reframing how we look at it looking at it like it's uh you know 
instead of being afraid of failing at something or making a fool of yourself, look at, you know what, if this goes belly up, I'm going to learn probably more than even if it goes perfectly well. Soul Trader for the work-life balance sheet. Are you able to tell us a bit more about your book and and how was the process putting that together? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, like I said, I had this problem in 2013, the anxiety hit 2014, the chronic pain hit. And I start my book in uh, 2016 when I was at the lowest point, which was after my third hip surgery. I was on like five or six different medications, um, you know, benzodiazepines, uh, oxycodone, and I just, I wasn't getting better. I wasn't getting over that hip surgery. Um, and then, you know, I go back to how I got there and how I got out of it. So when I got to mid 2019, I, I took my last little clonazepam pill that I'd carved up, uh, in April of uh, 2019. So I was completely off of drugs. I had this uh, therapist who I'd been seeing for about three years at that point. I found my muscle activation therapist who just totally saved my life physically in terms of getting my muscles working again. So I was getting better. And I thought, um, I should tell this story because I'm a very logical person, as you can tell, by the way. And I had kept detailed notes of this whole experience. I used to send my, my providers used to dread getting emails from me because I would go, well, okay, I'm doing this and I'm getting this result. And you said this and I said that. And okay, so where are we going? So I thought, let's, you know, let's just tell the story. Um, and as I was writing it during the pandemic, actually, um, I thought this is a story that can help people. So I put it together because I wanted what what we what in the military refers to as an after action report, um, basically what happened, what can we learn from it, and then I thought it would be a good story to tell um, because of the number of people who are going through the same thing. I mean, if you're talking about chronic pain, anxiety, and depression, and I had depression at one point in my life, um, you know, people are going through some combination of that in the millions in this country and in others as well, I thought I could be part of the conversation as to how we can help people better, better treat those. Um, so that's why I told the story and why I laid out the way I did. I don't lay it out as, you know, here's the magic solution. Everything's going to be fine. It's just, I hope as people read through it, they can go, okay, I, that I recognize that, or I'm a little bit different this way, whatever. I hope it, helps people in the process of, of solving uh, the, the problems that they face. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's the, the perfect message because, again, there's not no one size fits all. Anyone saying that they've got the solution or, you know, follow my um, 12-step program and I've got the, you know, I've got the solution to solve all problems, it's probably not the right answer. But sharing your story, sharing your experience, giving people you know, actionable ideas. And I think that message, again, that logical message is critical to actually ask questions. Hey, what about this? What about that? Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this issue. I understand the information you're giving me, but I don't know what to do daily. I'm still having this experience. And they, we have to drill down like that because otherwise it becomes too ambiguous and you can go around in circles. So it's, yeah, really, really important. Uh, what would you say to someone suffering? I mean, anxiety has probably been for me the um, biggest thing that I've had to deal with. What would you, and you know, as you just alluded to before, around the world, it's a huge issue. 
what would you say to someone dealing with anxiety? What are some tools that have worked for you in that realm to, to deal with anxiety on a daily basis? Yeah, I think the, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy part. Um, now, again, my problem was I didn't have that baseline sense of self-worth. So a lot of the therapists yeah. that I went to were trying to put me into um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I was too dismissive of too quickly. Because, you know, one of the things, well, they all said, what are you anxious about? And a lot of times when you have anxiety, an important thing to understand is you're not anxious about any specific thing. That's what's mm. so vexing about it to people who have never experienced anxiety. That's stress, okay? I can talk about, you know, I'm in the middle of an election and, oh my gosh, my opponent just put out this ad. I got to, do I respond to it? Do I not respond to it? I'm stressed. How do I deal with that? You can certainly process that stuff and that, that is important. But anxiety itself just comes at you and doesn't necessarily have a specific cause, okay? And if that's the case, you really need to get into your basic sense of self-worth and you will need, you will need someone to help you understand that. But then if you have that, the cognitive behavioral therapy stuff really does help. And what it basically means is to think more logically, um, mm -hmm. to understand the way your brain works, um, and that it can take you down dark roads. And the other big thing for me that helped was I learned that I don't have to solve every problem because this was one of my things. And the way I always explain this, as the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, a lot of people would ask me the question, what keeps you up at night? Report, mm -hmm. I, I guess in Reporter 101, that's the question you're supposed to ask. Um, and I know what they're asking, um, but I always answer the question the same way now, and that is nothing. Nothing keeps me up at night because that doesn't help anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. You mm -hmm. know, it's not like if I stay up for another three hours lying in bed worrying about it, I'm suddenly going to find the solution. But here's the thing I used to believe that. I used mm -hmm. to have this thing where if something was bothering me, I could feel it. And I'd be like, okay, what is it? Was it something someone said? And I had to deal with it. I had to deal with it and I had to resolve it before I could relax. Okay. I had to protect myself. You've got to get comfortable with the idea you're not going to solve everything. The problems are going to be there when you wake up in the morning and you're going to be better rested and in a better position to deal with them. So it's really important to recognize that you don't have to solve every problem. The second big piece is, and there's a lot, I'm not a huge fan of medication, right? Um, and let me just say up front, as I like to joke, I'm not going to go all Tom Cruise on you here. Um, medication <laughs> works for some people. I understand that. We way over prescribe it. It's the easy button. It's the simple, quick fix. And I will take as an example, the whole idea of the serotonin levels in your head. If you're depressed or anxious, they assume, well, your serotonin is out of balance. So we're going to give you this drug and it's going to make your serotonin get back to it. And what that tells people is there's nothing I can do about this. They, they treat it sort of like diabetes, you know, which mm -hmm. is your insulin level, nothing you can do about that. It's not the same. Yes, your serotonin levels can affect that. But you can also train your brain, regardless of what their serotonin levels are, to better process that stuff. I think of it in the same way as physically training. You can train your body to have more endurance, okay? If you don't have enough cardio, you can go run, bike, swim, you know, and then you'll have more cardio. You can also train your brain to not chase after every thought, to not follow those emotions. And just be, being aware of that is incredibly helpful as a starting point. And then it is incredibly helpful to talk about this stuff. You got to be honest. 
And that's the hardest thing, I think, for a lot of people. You build up these images of who you are and what you've done and how it's been that isn't necessarily what actually happened. And some of that stuff can trigger anxiety. And then you just got to be honest. How do you really feel about the relationships you're in? How do you really feel about the things you've done or the things that other people have done to you? So be honest. But also, it, it does help to find a therapist. The final thing I'll say about a therapist is you got to find one that you mesh with. All right. Therapists are like everybody else. They're different. A, some are good at their jobs. Some are not good at their jobs. All right. Um, so you've got to find the, the, the right, the right one. Um, I did want to say the other reason that I, that I wrote, wrote the book is I am a public official. Um, I still have a hard time thinking of myself that way. Um, but, and I think to have someone who is out in the public talking about this helps expand the idea that, Hey, you know, member of Congress, um, this isn't so odd and bizarre, uh, after all. There's not many politicians that are out there talking about this kind of stuff. And it's and when you look at it, it's like, well, why? Other people are and we're all human. You know, we, we like to categorise things and look at people in different positions as, you know, they're not allowed to show human traits. And, and I think that's what I learnt growing up. Um, in that, in a, in a political family, it's almost like there's an expectation that you're not meant to show that. And I think that needs to be broken because it's not, it's not true. And in so many facets of life. So, you know, I think that's, you know, it's very brave of you to go and do it. And I think it's helping so many people. Uh, it's helped me even hearing that message. Well, I think, you know, part of the reason public officials, because we, we're all, we all have our brand, right? You know, you got to stay on message. You got to have your, you know, and, and I think that's part of the reason why a lot of politicians are reluctant to do it because they think of it as being off brand. And I think this is particularly important now in the social media world where you got 13 year olds who are developing their brand, which by the way, I still find insane. Um, but, you know, you've got, you've got Instagram, you got Twitter. It's like, well, I want people to perceive me this way. Um, and then I've got to, once, once I've got that perception, I've got to mm, keep it in. We humans are a lot more all over the place. Okay. You know, and that's okay. In fact, that, that makes it, makes it better. I think when you acknowledge all the different variations that are in any one human being, but as a politician, you're trained that way. So I think that's why most politicians are reluctant to do anything that could be perceived as off message. So I want to try to break that. Um, obviously there are, there are others, you know, Senator Fetterman has been very public with his, his battles with depression. Um, you know, it, it is more part of the human experience than, than most people are aware. Absolutely. No, I think that's really well put. And just as a quick summary, are you able to just, I mean, you've talked about it, you know, you exercise CBT, different things, but on a daily basis, you know, what are some, what are the main things that help you now? You know, is it sleeping enough exercise? What are, what are the things for our listeners that, you know, you could share on that level? Well, first of all, I want to, I, the, the muscle activation therapy, which yeah. I didn't really touch on. Look, the, and I, I won't go into the long explanation here, but typically what physical therapists were telling me is, you know, your muscles, you, you need to be stronger and more flexible. That's the basic thing, but that's missing a right. crucial step. Muscle activation. If your body is messed up, and I had a knee surgery when I was a kid, my hips were impinged. I've never been terribly flexible, um, you know, and your muscles will react to that. 
and they will overcompensate. Some will shut down. You've got to get those going again. The muscle activation techniques, folks, if you Google muscle activation techniques, there's a lot of different people who do a form of muscle activation. This is one particular school that got my muscles going again. And I still, every couple of months, I go see the guy. Now, when I first started seeing him, there are 43 distinct muscle patterns in your body. When I first started seeing him, I think like 40 of them were shut down in me. All right. Oh my now God. when I go see him, it's like, yeah, two, three, you know, maybe four if I've had a bad couple of months. So that's number wow. one. The other thing is I move constantly. I do about 20,000 steps a day. I walk. Um, I still go to the gym, you know, on a, on, on a somewhat frequent basis. So I exercise a lot. The other big thing is when I go for a walk, I have artificial hips, so I can't run. Um, I don't take my phone with me. <laughs> okay. It drives yeah. my staff crazy from time to time. But I'm just going to go think and relax. Um, and the other big thing I do is I, it is helpful to take at least some portion of your day and say, I'm not going to react to what's going on around me. And it doesn't have to be long. Like I said, for me, it's usually just a couple of minutes and just say, I'm just going to notice things for a while. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to try to solve problems. And then find what, what brings you joy in life and, and do it. For me, it's exercise, sports, and humor, okay? If something strikes me funny, um, it just makes me feel better, all right? And there are some people, my, my wife loves to garden um, and do the yard work. It just gives her a sense of completion. So she goes out there for an hour. You know, whatever it is in life that brings you joy, um, you know, find time to do that because um, that can give your mind some space as well. And those are, that's sort of how I've lived, lived my life. And it's worked out. I fly back and forth. I fly all over the world. You know, doesn't really bother me. I sleep wherever I have to sleep. I always say that's my superpower. Actually, I can sleep on an airplane, um, which is enormously helpful in my line of work. Um, so, you know, whatever works for you, really important to find those things that, that bring you joy and, and, and make you happy, you know, at least a couple of times a day. Thank you for sharing that. And I think super inspiring, you know, overcoming that chronic pain and, and, you know, getting to the point you're at now, I think for everyone listening, everything in, in this really, it's, you know, there's so many amazing points. So thank you again for sharing. Where, where can we send our listeners if they want to find your book or anything else? Where, where's best for them to go? Yeah. The book is uh, straightforward on uh, amazon.com. I do have it. I don't do social media. Well, sorry. In my professional life, I, my staff does my social media. I'm all over social media. I don't have anything to do with about 99% of it. Um, <laughs> I do have an Instagram and, and a Twitter site now that I've done personally that I don't update as often as I should. Uh, but the easiest way to find out more about me is to go to Smith at mail.house.gov. That's my official website. Um, and from that, everything else sort of flows out, out, out of there. Adam, thank you again for all the work you're doing. Thank you for coming on here and making this time. Well, thank you very, very much for the chance. It's rare to hear a politician speak so candidly about their own mental health battles, and it's gone a long way in further destigmatizing the issue and showing that no matter who you are or what position you're in, we're all human and we all have struggles. His story emphasizes the significance of openness and honesty in addressing these issues. Adam's a big believer in destigmatizing mental health struggles to encourage more people to seek help. Growing up in a political family, I related to a lot of what Adam spoke about. 
Ambition and drive are positive traits, but can become problematic when you're driven by severe insecurity. Adam acknowledged that his ambition and drive have been key factors in his successful political career. He talked about the balance of harnessing insecurity as a driving force while also keeping balance. Ultimately, having a healthy self-worth and managing ambition within a healthy mental space can lead to greater and more sustainable success. Adam gained a deeper appreciation for empathy and understanding other people's struggle through his own mental health journey. He believes that people are generally kind and helpful and understanding their challenges can lead to better working relationships and cooperation. Adam talked about how we need to approach the journey with an open mind and accept that it will be a long and challenging journey. By accepting the challenge, you'll be more likely to take the appropriate steps. He emphasised the need to move away from seeking quick fixes and instead adopt a holistic approach to mental health. Prioritising mental health and understanding its importance in personal growth is essential. Just as physical exercise is necessary for a healthy body, mental exercise is vital for a healthy mind. Adam also shared his experience of conquering his fear of public speaking through practice and exposure. Again, I really relate to this through my own journey. He highlighted the value of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone for personal growth. Embracing discomfort and being comfortable with being uncomfortable is part of the process when it comes to personal development and resilience. Adam, like many guests, spoke about the reality behind social media, highlighting the discrepancy between the idealised images people often portray and the actual images they face in real life. He talked about the importance of understanding that social media often presents a skewed and incomplete view of people's lives. He takes a holistic approach to mental health that includes daily habits such as exercise and meditation. He also talked about how important cognitive behavioural therapy can be in challenging irrational thoughts and developing a more logical and accepting mindset. Adam's interview offered valuable insights into personal growth, mental health, and the importance of understanding and accepting yourself to overcome challenges in life. His story provides hope and a positive message for others who may be facing similar struggles. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and, you know, incorporate it. Online and on demand at Disrupt.radio.